welcome all you weirdos, Krakoans, and all you hoopy fruits who really know where your towels are. It is time for episode number 42 of your Weird Dose of X, the only X-Man podcast that is also a member of the Weird Science family of podcasts. I am your Vogon poetry expert, Jason, and joining to talk to me about life, the universe, and everything is your friend and mine, Ruben. So, Ruben, do you have any idea what I'm talking about, or are you as confused as most of our audience right now? <laughs> a lot of what you say sounds like it's very academic, so yes, you're way over my head. <laughs> yeah, this is, a, this is very classy. This is a, a, a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm familiar with that. Actually, so, I think I do know that, yes. Okay. It's been a while. Number 42 is the answer to life, the universe, and everything. I so I get very I excited about the number. Uh, it, it's part of my login for most things I log into. That's why uh, in the badass roll call, I'm Sue42 to you and me, as Jim says every week. So yeah, I was excited to see episode, landmark episode number 42 come rolling by. So I'm pretty happy about that. So, how are you are doing the this week? the ones that, that have basically no humor and they just want to bulldoze planet Earth through their highway? They're part of that. And yes, they also have the worst poetry in the universe, uh, yeah. but they think they're great at it. So they tie people down and and read them poetry until their ears bleed. Their thing. That was a fun series. It was, it was sad that, uh, what was his name? Douglas uh, Adams? Adams. Yeah, Douglas, Douglas Adams, mm-hmm. that he died before he could complete the real ending. I read the very last one, you know, that they had a ghostwriter finish. And yeah, it just it was, wasn't. Was, I think quite it was mostly harmless, I think is what they called the, uh, the wrap up. Yeah, the, the, the original book and the original trilogy are clearly, you know, much like Star Wars, they're kind of the only ones that count. Hot take. Okay, so back to the X Men and away from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, this week, we'll be talking about three books. We'll be talking about, or mostly Ruben will be talking about, Rogan Gambit number two, and then we'll move on to Wolverine number 32, and close it down with Immoral X-Men number three. But first, Ruben, I have some breaking news for you. I'll say that once again, because Jim likes that drop. Breaking news. Uh, we are recording, uh, to pull back the curtain, as Jim likes to say, a little earlier than usual, just because it's Easter weekend and I have to travel with my kid to go visit a potential college. And so Ruben has agreed that we're going to, we're recording this on Friday. So if there's any news that breaks after Friday, it, it, we haven't heard it yet. But news that did break today is we have a little bit of information on one of our new Fall of X titles. We've learned that we have a creative team for Astonishing Iceman. Have you seen this, Ruben? You're always my news person. <laughs> I guess I'm a proxy for the listener, right? I, I don't do a lot of research on this. You you are the everyman, that's right. Yes. So, yeah, I just happened to see this as I was getting ready to, to log into Zencaster. Uh, Steve Orlando, it'll be the oh, writer. Oh, God. I mean, they, <laughs> Marvel does like to do a little uh, identity matching between their writers and their characters, for good or ill. But he'll be the writer, and the artist will be Vincenzo Caratu, or possibly Caratu. Not quite sure how to say it. I think he's probably an art, an Italian artist. So yeah, that will be launching like a lot of these following the Hellfire Gala. So we have any other information exactly when? I don't see exactly when. Oh, here it is on sale August second. Will be Astonishing Iceman number one. It's a. I'm sure they will. It's got the Fall of X branding right on the cover, so that'll be a thing we'll be seeing a lot of. I'm sure. Uh, yeah. So we'll be getting more and more of those new titles, and I, again. Uh, it is, as we record, it is the 7th of April, so almost a week after April Fool's Day, and none of those new titles have been, you know, revealed to be actual jokes. So unless they've totally committed to the bit, these are all going to be real Fall of X titles. 
Oh, well. So, that's enough about what's coming up. Let's talk about books that have already been published. So, Ruben, what have Rogue and her useless man-child of a husband been up to this week? I think I was in the Slack talking about how this issue is almost a good story, but there's enough in it that infuriates me that I can't recommend it to anyone. I think Gabe said something along those lines as well, that there was something that uh, Gambit did that was unforgivable or that breaks the character. It's... I. I, I have not actually gotten around to reading this book yet, which is why it's a Ruben Solo project. Yeah, I kind of disagree about it, break character, but the rest of the plot points are just sort of too convenient and obnoxious. So I guess I'll do the quick summary. We start out with Rogan Gambit in some Nevada desert. Should I give the uh, the uh, creative team first? I might as well. We've got Rogan Gambit number two, entitled Throw It Girl. Written by Stephanie Phillips, art by Carlos Gomez, color artist David Curiel, letters Ariana Mayer, designed by Tom Muller, with Jay Bowen. Now over to you. So, Rogue and Gomez are in a desert. They had been left there by Manifold. So, he had ported them away from a trap after everyone had kind of lost their powers from some mystery power zapping gun that was used against the three of them. And so, they're walking, looking for civilization, and we have kind of the similar relationship dynamic that we saw in the last issue where Gambit's kind of a dope and Rogue seems pretty much fed up with him and they're checking, yep, we still don't have our powers. And so, you know, they're kind of in the middle of nowhere. They don't know where civilization is. They don't have water. They could be dying, but they decide to get freaky in the desert because Gambit realizes, you know, she doesn't have her power sucking powers right now. So might as well take advantage of that. So that's that's sort of contrivance number one that seems really weird. I think if you're in a survivalist situation, um, getting freaky in the desert is not going to be your first well, choice. But I guess everybody has their own priorities. <laughs> Rescue their friend who's in the clutches of villains or, you know, yes. make out with the yes. wife. And so there's a, a joke later about Gambit trying to get some sand out of a area mm. that he would like to get out of. So any, anyway, so they eventually wander and they arrive at some sort of civilization. Um, and they end up in a trucker bar, and I think they expect it to be backwards and sort of anti-mutants because the bikers in the bar kind of say, hey, we know who you are, right? So they're getting ready for a fight. And then to flip the script, it turns out that they're actually sort of grateful. They say, like, hey, didn't you guys try to save the world a few times, or that you did? So instead of, you know, being uh, in a bar brawl, they're instead kind of enjoying the scenery at the bar. That's that's not a bad little twist there, I guess. Yeah. So then here's the next part, um, and this is what where I just sort of kind of got annoyed. Um, Black Panther shows up randomly. <laughs> wow. At this bar. That's a big guest star to get. He knows where to find them. I guess he is on the cover now that I look at it. Yes. And what he says is that Manifold contacted Black Panther at some point and said, hey, Rogue and Gambit want me to go with them to help out Destiny with something, and I don't want to do it. And then also Black Panther realized that Manifold is missing, which I don't know how that happened. And then he also knows that uh, Manifold was with Rogan Gambit before he went missing. And so he's like, you guys must have done something with him, and he's an Avenger, so I'm going to get my vengeance against you. <laughs> right there in the title. It's like it's spelled on the tin, yeah. So all of this dro- drove me insane, right? Because I'm like, at what point would he have had this conversation? It makes no sense to me. Like, he, Manifold knows Rogan Gambit, right? Like, why would you be like, oh, they're up to something? And then, oh, I better call Black Panther of all people to just let him know that this is going on. And then how would Black Panther know that he's missing? Like, is he like 
tracking him, like all the adventures. It just, none of it makes sense to me. It's just really irritating. I needed a lot better explanation as to what was going on here. It does look, again, I haven't read it, but just flipping through, it does look like an excuse to have your classic hero on hero battle, to have a, you know, yes. a bar brawl between Rogan Gambit and Black Panther. Yes. So they fight. And the, the part that Gabe was kind of irritated about is Rogan, Black Panther kind of getting their, they're getting their punches in. And then it, it kind of looks like Black Panther's got the upper hand. So Rogue jumps in and, you know, saves her man, as we've seen in the previous issue. Sure, which is pretty sure. inept. And so, and because they don't have their powers, I think the belief is, well, Black Panther's still going to kick their butt. So Rogue, or Gambit runs into the kitchen and he grabs. I guess the cook or somebody that works there. He ties her up to a gas stove. Oh my goodness. And essentially creates like a life or death situation where he turns on the gas and like starts a fire. Oh no, that's, that's not a heroic thing to do. No. And then directs uh, Black Panther's attention to it. I mean, that is the classic villain move. You can either save her or you can capture me, but not both. <laughs> Correct. You can hear me twirling my mustache. Correct. So he grabs Rogue and, and pulls her out, and she's like, what the hell are you doing? And he's like, Black Panther's a hero. He'll save her. Don't worry about it, but we got to get out of here. They get on some motorcycle and speed off. Wow. So that's and, – and then they're like, well, now we need to track Manifold. So they go back to Krakoa and meet up with Forge. Because apparently oh, yeah. he can. We don't actually see Manifold in this issue, do we? Well, there's there's a second scene earlier on where we actually do. He's oh, basically okay. trapped in some villain's prison and – some undisclosed villain is talking trash to him. He's in one of those classic clear glass cells that we get in all these comic books and yeah. we don't know who has them. Okay. Yeah. And then we get some data pages about uh, like some celebrity gossip columnist interviewing Rogue after some battle. And she basically talks about how bad their relationship is again and gets Rogue flummoxed in the interview. Oh dear. So, yeah. A lot of sort of overly convenient plot points to get, you know, from point A to point B that don't make any sense. The art's pretty good. Um, and this, you know, gambit almost killing somebody to create a distraction to get away thing. You could like that or not. I'm okay with that because he is a criminal sort of, right? And I, I do think like if he's confident that Black Panther's going to rescue this person, then to him it's just a distraction to get out. So I've seen that before, but it, I mean, I can certainly see like him like stealing money, stealing a car, stealing whatever that can be in character. But tying mm -hmm. a lady up to a gas stove, I mean, can you predict exactly when that stove's going to explode? Like, are you really completely sure she's going to get rescued? That that seems pretty rough. Well, I'm sure it's just there to create some relationship drama with them in issue three, right? I don't imagine Rogue being okay with that decision. That would be a, a interesting twist, though, if you know, find out next issue that she actually did, you know, get exploded, and it's all Rogue's fault. That would be a, that would make it a, a different tone of a book than I think it's been so far. I don't don't expect that to happen, but it would make it, I think, more interesting than it is. So, yes. okay, that's that's Rogue and Gambit number two. It doesn't seem like I've missed a whole lot. It doesn't seem no. like it's particularly central to the story of Krakoa, but uh, well, give give it a number. What would you what would you call it? Uh, probably five five at this point. Five five, ooh, yeah, not a, not a classic. The art is great, but uh, I guess it's a particular style. Uh, maybe some people wouldn't like it, but I think it's great. Um, but the for a relationship driven book, a lot of the stuff is just too contrived and convenient. Okay, so if you do want your relationship drama and your heroes possibly murdering a woman to death, you can find that in Rogan Gambit number two. 
but we're going to move on to Wolverine number 32, Weapons, Laurel, of X, Part 2, written by Ben Percy, art by Juan Jose Rip, colors by Frank Darmada, letters by Corey Pettit, designed by Tom Muller, with Jay Bowen. So, here's where we left off, as far as I can recall. Beast was dead, killed by Wolverine for being such a bad dude, but secretly resurrected himself back in X-Force HQ. Uh, he then pushed a button that made said HQ into a kaiju mecha, maybe a Gundam. I'm not sure where these de- these uh, definitions overlap. Whatever it is, big old thing, uh, which he then walked out into the ocean where he used it to murder the crew of a submarine. He then announced himself his old X-Force mates and started pumping out clones of himself and Wolverine. So now what is Logan going to do about that? And why isn't this taking place in the pages of X-Force? Well, this this is a, a really action-packed issue of Wolverine, which I think is what you want from Wolverine, right? This is not the book for deep philosophical musing. This is not the book for intellectual flights of fancy. This is the book for grunting and ripping dudes' guts out with claws. And if that's what you want, that is what we get right from the opening set piece. We meet this uh, Scottish aristocrat, Lord Stewart. Ben Percy does not want us to like Lord Stewart. Do you, did you get that feeling, too? We're not supposed to really sympathize with him. He's an overweight, middle-aged white guy who hunts and, you know, isn't really good at hunting. I think Ben Percy might like us, uh, might want us to like Lord Stewart's servant, maybe his game warden. His name is Farley. A little more, feel bad for Farley. But Lord Stewart has been buying unauthorized Krakoan flowers, and Beast isn't having any of that. Uh, would such a small-time guy really be the top of Beast's hit list, though? Like, right after he goes full kaiju? I don't know. In any event, a squad of Beast's finest wolverines show up. Uh, humanely finish off a stag that Lord Stewart has ineptly wounded, inhumanely gut poor Farley, and then decapitate Lord Stewart, tossing his severed head quite cinematically into the ocean in front of that submerged kaiju. Uh, as an aside, I'm about 95% sure that artist Juan Jose Rip used images of uh, British writer G.K. Chesterton as photo reference for Lord Stewart. Uh, that guy is probably most famous for writing Catholic apologetics, and uh, the Father Brown mystery. So he's a kind of a famous writer, you know, 100 and 150 show years ago, and he looks just like Lord Stewart. Uh, yeah. So what did you think of this opening opening scene here? It was it was interesting. <laughs> it certainly interesting sets a enough. tone. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say overall, this issue was more interesting to me than most Wolverine issues. I think the you know the strike force of kind of weapons X is interesting enough. Yeah, I, I think I'm getting into the spirit of this book. I'm realizing what it is and what it's trying to do, and I'm just saying, okay, that that's what we're doing. I'm I'm here for the ride. It's fine by me. And as as a sort of cinematic scene, I can visualize this in kind of a movie absolutely view. So I thought that was pretty effective. And I'd say the the characters are sort of cliches in general, but I was able to kind of just get rid of my criticisms on that. Right, like they don't need to be deep characters. This is just you know random British guy who is an aristocrat that you're not supposed to like and kind of plays into the whole, you know, England's voiding their treaty with Krakoa, right? So I can imagine Beast wanting to take action against the people that might have influenced that decision. That makes sense. It's a good point. So after that little scene, we get another peek inside uh, Beast's kaiju. We don't get exact numbers, but there are at least 10 beasts and at least 10 wolverines in there. Probably, Probably a lot more wolverines. It seems like that's probably where the numbers are. And all the Wolverines are wearing collars like that one that kept Logan in a feral state for issues like 27 through 29. In a, a short data page, our original Beast, who calls himself Beast Prime, explains that he does not view the other beasts as his equals. No, no, no. They are just, quote, 
a brilliant set of data cabinets churning with programming. I kind of wonder why he thinks he needs to use his own genetic template then if they're just going to be tools. Wouldn't the gifts of someone like Sage be more useful, all that techno-electronic communicating thing? It's, it's a weird balancing act, right? Beast has this huge ego, so he must make more beasts because beasts are the best, but then he doesn't let those beasts really be, you know, fully themselves. They're just kind of cogs in his, in his uh, machinery. The only question I have about this is, is he trying to basically make Beast into Mr. Sinister? There's certainly an interesting parallel there, right? Because over in Sins or Sinister, we see the Sinisterized Quiet Council, and we saw how that worked out, which is not very well for Mr. Sinister, uh, because they asserted themselves, they overthrew him, they rose up against him, and we don't really get any hints of that happening to Beast. Like, we don't really hear anything from the other other beasts. Uh, the only We see one beast say to the Wolverines, if you'll come this way for your debriefing, and that's not the Beast Prime, but I think that's the only actual line of dialogue that any non-Beast Prime beast gets at all. So we're not getting any other personalities, we're not getting any feeling that they want to be more than just filing cabinets. So maybe maybe Beast's way of doing this is going to be more successful than Mr. Sinister. Well, speaking of the Quiet Council, let's go and check in with them. Uh, my brain continues to be mostly stuck in the Sins of Sinister timeline, but this is the regular Quiet Council, either before or possibly after that timeline branches off. Uh, we probably shouldn't even think about that. Uh, they're having another boring meeting and are about to adjourn when Logan walks in and dumps the original beast rotting fungus-infested corpse in their midst. Uh, no one seems to have given them a heads up that Logan was on his way. Maybe Black Tom could have said something. Hey, you know, heads up, dudes. But maybe Black Tom thought it would be more dramatic this way. I mean, Ben Percy thought it was more dramatic this way. Emma reads Logan's mind, sparing us all from having to sit through a retelling of the past couple issues, which is nice. And Logan heads right back out, telling the council that he's going hunting, something we know he's rather better at than the unfortunate Lord Stewart. And that's all we'll see of Logan in this entire issue of his own book, just just these two pages. I mean, to be fair, there's plenty of other Wolverines in the book, so I, I guess that counts. Uh, now we head off to our closing action set piece of the book, and it's it's a doozy. Turns out that Lord Stewart had been getting his Krakoan flowers from none other than Maverick and his band of Merry Mercs, who are piloting their own submarine. Man, Ben Percy is really hung up on submarines lately, isn't he? We had the one last issue... Back in X-Force, we had that team riding uh, their own submarine for a while to go off to get the Gene Engineer. I, I guess he's watching a lot of submarine movies lately. That doesn't, I, they look cool. I'm fine with it. Uh, yeah, so this submarine goes through some undersea Krakoan gates, uh, and the Mercs have these philosophical conversations about whether stealing plants really counts as stealing when they, they just grow back anyway. It kind of reminds me of conversations I've heard about software piracy, but that's a whole different podcast. What, what's important here is that the only people on board the sub are Maverick and a bunch of mercenaries who keep their faces covered, both to give artist Juan Jose Rip a little break, and also so that we, the audience, don't feel bad for them when Wolverine just kills them all, because of course that's what happens. Somehow the sub's radar system mistakes Beast's giant kaiju for a, quote, lonely iceberg. I guess we credit Krakoan cloaking technology for that, because I don't know how else that works, but yay Krakoa. Uh, it does make for a really striking visual. There's a lot of striking visuals in this book. That uh, ivory dome of the kaiju skull poking up out of an oddly calm sea. I think it looks it looks spooky. It looks great. Uh, so Wolverine clones stream out of the kaiju underwater and infiltrate the sub, messily killing faceless goons along the way. There's an over-the-top but just 
undeniably cool bit where more of these Wolverine clones embed themselves in the kaiju's knuckles. Did you like that? Where they kind of act as living Wolverine claws for the kaiju to peel the sub open like a sardine can. That's that's a cool idea. I mean, it's it's a big dumb action scene, but that I thought was a pretty cool idea. Did you did you like that bit, or was it too much? It, it's a bit much for me. <laughs> I was like, just have claws, right? You don't need Wolverines that are claws. I don't know how that makes it more fierce, but I think by that point I had just I had just bought into the silliness, the goofiness of it all, and yeah. Wolverines with their claws out being the claws on a giant kaiju. Huh, sure, why not? Go for it. It did make me angry, I'll say that, but I, it's kind of silly. Oh, uh, so at this point, all the faceless goons on the sub are dead, and all the Wolverines make it back to home base. Well, all but one. That one has been captured by Maverick, who was able to tell that something was not quite right with his old buddy Wolverine. Maybe the giveaway was that he was attacked by about nine Wolverines. I think that might have been a clue. Uh, and that's where we leave off. Beast and his crew are heading back to look for what they think is the corpse of a wolverine at the bottom of the ocean. Maverick has that wolverine. Alive, I think. It's, it's hard to tell with wolverine. Uh, and is headed off to, I don't know, where would Maverick go in the situation? He doesn't really have allies. He's this loner mutant mercenary. He could go to Krakoa, but, uh, he's not really on good, good terms with Krakoa. Was he on bad terms with them? I don't think he's been stealing plants from them. Yeah, but who knows about that? I mean, he kept it under wraps, right? The only people that know that he was a thief are Beast. I, I guess. I think that's where he's headed. I think he's going to go back to Krakoa. My prediction is he has some back-channel way of contacting Logan, the real Logan, directly. I don't know whether it's you know, a, a, a Dropbox, some sort of a website thing, I don't know, some technological thing. I think he's going to contact Logan directly and say, is this you, buddy? And I think that's probably how we're going to move up, move forward. But who knows? We could have two Wolverines now, too, just like we have two X-23s. <laughs> you think he's going to stick around like a like a Doombat, Doombot that's decided to go good? Uh, yeah. I, I don't think we're going to have that, that. Maybe. Who knows? It's Ben Percy. He could do anything. But yeah, overall, this this was a fun issue. I, I like it kind of a lot, probably more than I should. As I said at the beginning, it does what, what you'd want, or at least I'd want a Wolverine issue to do. Imaginative, violent fight scenes told via great art. Ben Percy, I think, does well here, but the MVP is Juan Jose Rip, and not just because I like saying his name. Uh, the mostly submerged kaiju, the wolverines swimming out and back into the kaiju, Beast standing around looking like the smug SOB we know he is. Uh, visually top-notch work, resulting in probably my favorite issue of Wolverine in, in quite a while. And I'm going to give this, uh, I'll call it an 8.3 out of 10. Wow. Well, I, I give it a solid 7. Solid not- 7. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm not as in love with it because it's just a well-done action issue, but the art is great, and uh, I'd say 7 is probably high praise for a person that doesn't like Wolverine. But then when you mentioned that he wasn't in the issue a lot, I was like, well, maybe I like the issue because there's not a lot of Wolverine in the Wolverine issue. Oh, well, again, it really depends. How do you count? Is Wolverine Wolverine or are all the other Wolverines also Wolverine? How many Wolverines can dance on the head of a pin? Uh, moving on to our third and final book of the week, we have Immoral X-Men number three, also known as Sins of Sinister Part Eight, our 900 years and counting mission, which is a Star Trek reference. And I think that mostly wraps up our Star Trek references. I think there's like one more in the book, but this is not nearly as Star Trek focused as the last one. This book is, of course, written by Kieran Gillen, art by Alessandro Vitti, who's doing the year 1000 art, color artist Brain Barreto, letters by Clayton Cowles, designed by Jay Bowen, all by himself. 
So when we ended issue two of this book, Sinister had escaped from the clutches of his Sinister Council by stealing their brand new ship, the Marauder, and tricking his new quintuple clone Rasputin IV into thinking that he, Sinister, was a good guy who just wanted to make the universe nice again. In this issue, set 900 whole years later, a thousand years after Sinister took over, we learn, well, we learn the universe has pretty much gone to crap. Well, you'll get a little more detail as we go on, but that, that's pretty much the long and short of it. Uh, let's start with the Sinisterized Quiet Council and just say what their status is, because that's kind of, that'll tell us how the universe is faring. Uh, a lot of this info comes from a data page. Some other bits of it I'm throwing in gleaned from like, other parts of the story. We'll start with Exodus. There are multiple clones of Exodus now, some unknown large number. Each of them occupy a different planet, and each of those planets are filled with clones or captives, maybe, in these biopods whose only job is to praise and have faith in their exodus, which, of course, is where his power comes from. There seems to be an uneasy, peace-like cold war between these various exodus prayer worlds. Hope, she's still dead. It looks like since there are chunks of her all around that can power resurrection protocols, the other quiet counselor decided, yeah, we, we don't need her around anymore. She was, she was going to be kind of a pain. Nightcrawler, he's also still dead. Uh, a data page says that his genetic line is still active in Mother Righteous's cult, the Legion of the Night, which it looked like they were about to die out back in year 100, but I guess they're hanging on. We're, we're due to hear more about them next week in that book. Professor X. We're told he is the protectorate of the dream. Something about disembodied brains and spaceships who are constantly at war with our next counselor, Emma Frost. Now, she's taken over the Red Diamond faction and has really leaned hard into that Red Diamond motif. I mean, she, in her diamond form, she is now bright red. And also, I think she's merged physically with the Crimson Gem of Sidorak, that artifact that powers a juggernaut. I didn't really understand that, but I don't, I don't think we're supposed to. Did you... Is there anything there I'm missing, or is it just, hey, that looks cool? <laughs> it just looks cool. Just you looks cool. Anything. Fair enough. Yeah. I okay. mean, she's even stronger now, right? That's what I would take from that. Yeah, she she seems to be have the have her stuff together the most of any of these these people. They're more in charge of things. They they all kind of fell apart. The council fell apart when they didn't really have a goal anymore. It seemed the only thing keeping them together was having a common enemy, whether it was you know taking over the Earth or fighting back against these uh, robots or AI or aliens, once they're the only game in town, they're just going to fight each other. So next we have Kate Pride, who she has leaned hard into the space pirate motif, gallivanting around the universe, stealing parts from ships and parts from the people on those ships, leaving those corpses phased through space junk as like a warning or just nasty uh, landmarks for other people. So kind of gross. Colossus, we're told, is the bulwark of materialism, who says, all superpower to the space Soviets, which is a play on the real-world Leninist slogan, all power to the Soviets. So I guess he's gone full commie? I don't know. He doesn't seem to be a big part of this story. He's just kind of strong guy in the background. Speaking of not a big part of the story, we have Namor, who is the imperator of the drowned worlds, sire of the night consorts. I don't know what those are, but I don't know if it matters. We had seen in an earlier issue that a sinisterized Namor was brought onto the council. He doesn't seem to be playing much of a part in this particular story, but he's still around. Beast, he is a scientist slash slave to Emma, so he's not an independent actor anymore. He's just doing what Emma tells him to do. Magic, she lost something called the Seventh Diamond War, which again, we're just getting the idea there's lots of fighting on between the quiet counselors. Uh, and she has retreated to the, quote, limbic incursion. 
And we see at one point that this war has left a huge, dangerous, magical scar across the galaxy. Sebastian Shaw, there are now lots of him, and together they slash he have a ruling majority in hell. So, good for him. And finally, Mr. Sinister himself. He's been missing for 900 years. He's still a wanted criminal, but seems to be mostly forgotten and presumed dead by all the all the power players. So that's our setting. Pretty bleak. I mean, the mutants have won. Mutants are in control of the galaxy. There's no aliens, no post-humans, no AI, at least nothing big enough to be called a threat. They have been decisively defeated. But as that data page concludes, somehow hate and fear remain. Oh, gotta get that hate and fear thing in there. So, Ruben, what do you think of this year 1000 universe we have in front of us? Um, it's interesting enough. It's definitely dystopian. Um, you were, you were telling me that people were saying there's a lot of parallels to the Warhammer 40,000 universe. That's what I've heard people say, yes. Do you know Warhammer 40k at all? I do pretty well, yeah. For a while, I was a big Magic the Gathering player, and then I quit that and became a 40k player. And so I'm pretty much neither at this point, but uh, for a while, I was kind of steeped in the lore. I can see the parallels, and as I was looking at the title of the issue, um, there's only war. That's definitely a um, 40k saying. Okay. And I know Gillen has written uh, Warhammer comics. Is that... Uh, yes, correct. I forget the name. Like, one one big character, he wrote like a five-issue miniseries. Calder. Yeah. He wrote a good story about that character. So it, it would make sense. Yeah. And the portrayal of Exodus being kind of this godly character with people worshipping him and giving him power from that is definitely a kind of emperor thing from 40k. Okay. I, I did look at Kieran Gillen's latest newsletter where he likes to talk about you know what he's been publishing. He, he has this to say. He says that year plus 10, this is his quote, was our invasion of the body snatchers cyberpunk near future. Plus 100 was our shiny space opera period. And this, meaning plus 1000, is the far future gothic decadent horror sci-fi future. It's horrible. It's really horrible. We are very proud. So that that is how he thinks about it. He didn't actually mention Warhammer in that quote. I thought he might have dropped a hint in his newsletter, but uh, that's what we got. I also think it's interesting that I we don't I don't usually read or make reference to the quotes that all get put at the beginning of these issues. Some of them are you know, real world quotes. Some of them are made up by the characters in the book. This one is a quote from uh, Candide by Voltaire, and that quote is: "If this is the best of possible worlds, what then are the others?" Now, are, are you a big Voltaire fan? <laughs> um, no, I'm not. Uh, I, I read some of this back when I was uh, a, a high school student. And so Candide is a satire of a philosophy called optimism. And it doesn't mean optimism like we might use, you know, having a good outlook on life today. Optimism was a philosophical school that said the world that exists is, by definition, philosophically provably the best of all possible worlds. And Candide was just a series of horrible things happening to these characters. And one of them kept saying, well, I guess this is the best of all possible worlds, so this must be for the best. But horrible things kept happening, and that was Voltaire making fun of this philosophy. And clearly, this timeline is not the best of all possible timelines, despite, again, the fact is, the mutants won. So Gillen's having a good time with that that contrast of, hooray, we won, but it's, it's still crap. Uh, so throughout all this... Uh, going on here. Sinister and Rasputin IV can have continued to scour the universe looking for Sinister's lost lab and his lost Moiras. It's just the two of them, the other members of the ship's crew, long since dead. I don't. I, I look back, I wanted to see if they're all wearing red shirts last issue. 
they weren't, but oh well. They, they basically turned out to be expendable red shirts. I'm still not exactly sure how this Moira clone could even still be living. We haven't really heard much about that. Did he spice in, splice in like a Greenland shark genes? That's the shark that can live for 100 years. I, I don't know, but she's obviously still alive because the universe hasn't reset. They have a lead on a clue existing in a cloned mind on Exodus Prayer World 5372389, which it's not quite Jenny's phone number, but kind of feels like that. I googled that number. I felt it must mean something. It came up blank. So if that does have a, a meaning for Kieran Gillen, if it's not just a random number, I, I wasn't able to find it. Uh, but we get a nice close-up look at this planet, which has some really astounding art. Uh, Rasputin gets the clue here that's been hiding in one of the praying minds, and she and Sinister flee, but not before the exodus of this planet notices them. And the only way that Sinister and Rasputin escape is by triggering a war between all of the neighboring exodus planets who seem to mutually annihilate each other. Very, you know, very Cold War, very, again, I'm going to use the word bleak. Rasputin translates the clue for Sinister. It says, quote, we should be on the same side, which should sound familiar because that's what Destiny has been saying to Sinister at multiple times, going back at least to Immortal number one. There were some coordinates attached to that clue, and going there, Sinister and Rasputin find a very old-fashioned Thomas Edison-style cylindrical phonograph record, uh, which I thought was kind of cool because it's a kind of a callback to Sinister and Destiny's early time together back in the Victorian period, where this was like the level of technology that was really around. So Sinister builds a phonograph capable of playing the record and finds a fairly long message from Destiny. Destiny, of course, is dead, having been killed by Storm and her brotherhood about 900 years ago. In this message, Destiny says to Sinister, I stole your lab. It was me. I did it. I helped engineer this timeline to keep Mystique alive, but she's dead now, so it's time to try something else. She basically says, I, Destiny, am now on Team Reset the Universe. Uh, inside the cylinder are instructions to lead you to your Moiras. And P.S. I know you want to become a Dominion. Uh, it doesn't work out for you. I've seen the future. You ain't it. You should give up. And whether that last bit is true or just a lie to encourage Sinister to do what Destiny wants to do is an open question. So do you think that she's telling the truth here about what she's seen in the future, or is she just trying to be manipulative? I think she's telling the truth. It certainly doesn't seem like he's on the verge of becoming a, a, a Dominion. I think the, there's certainly other characters kind of ahead of him in that race, so it, yes. it makes sense. I also, as it's been portrayed here, she doesn't seem to have any concerns about whether he wins or not. It's all a question of whether Mystique survives kind of indefinitely with Destiny. So if, they, if he could reach Dominion and keep Destiny and Mystique alive, I think she would totally be fine with that. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, I think it seems that seems to be her one and only motivation is is being with, with Mystique forever. So this is also the moment when the plot kind of turns. Rasputin overhears him, and somehow this is the moment she finally, after 900 years, figures out, hey, Mr. Sinister might not be a good dude. Uh, she says, quote, you're not trying to save the universe, are you? No, no kidding, Rasputin. Uh, you, you did not get any Charles Xavier uh, genes in you because you should have figured this out hundreds of years ago. They fight, and Sinister manages to jettison her out into space. Sinister goes on to the coordinates from Destiny's Cylinder, which lead him back to, hey, Earth, which is disgustingly overgrown now by a clone of Kenji Uedo, a Matt Fraction character who has some pretty gross body modification type powers. You can look him up. He's just kind of gross. He was a post-M-Day mutant. 
so Sinister now finds a cave and all this kind of fleshy nonsense. And in this cave are a barely functioned Doombot, who we've seen reference to in, I think, data pages earlier, and also Moira McTaggart. This is the AI android version who's been working with Orcus, or at least was a, a thousand years prior. They team up and head to the next of Destiny's destinations. This brings them to the distant reaches of space where the world farm got sent by Storm's magic wormhole. So Sinister is here. He's finally in the same place, or damn close to it, where his lab is and where his Moira engine is. But the place is guarded. His ship is shot, crashes, and our odd trio is met by Ironfire from the Storm and the Brotherhood book, who now looks like a super buff version of Odin and has this giant Nash-looking dog with a Cyclops helmet. Exactly what he's been doing all these years besides guarding... You know, the Moiras, who knows? He's, he's seen some stuff. Sinister starts to try to talk Ironfire to joining Team Reset the Universe, but that's where our story ends. Almost. We get one final page of Rasputin 4 floating in space, trying to conserve the last bits of her oxygen and energy, and a voice appears in her head. We're not told in so many words that it's Mother Righteous, but it, it's Mother Righteous. The voice offers Rasputin a chance at revenge and asks her, Do you want to make a deal? And that's our story. Bleak is the secret word of the day. So, what did uh, what did you think of this story, which is mostly just a, a tour through this this uh, this timeline? I like it. Um, very simple answer. Like most of the Kieran Gillen stories in the Sins of Sinister kind of epic, I found them enjoyable. I think he does enough to explain kind of what's going on here and give you a sense of what it is without being overkill. And I'm okay with it being kind of just a flash in the yeah. can. I don't think we need a, a six-issue mini just going through all the awful things that have happened. Yeah. It, it's it's fine to just say, yeah, a bunch of weird stuff happened. Let's throw out some cool-sounding names that kind of hint at it, and we don't need to know the details. Yeah. I and think- I, I really enjoy the, the callbacks to other stories. Having read, before we did this, the Further Adventures of Cyclops yes, and Phoenix, yes. I thought it was like such an excellent decision because there's that line when Destiny is talking to on, on the cylinder, yeah, yeah, and basically saying like, "I know you don't feel empathy or understand, you know, the significance of loss, but you know, at one point in time, remember your grief drove you to kind of the path that you're on right now." Mm-hmm. And that's basically that was the that story, right? Yes, you know, his kid died, and his wife and his his kid died together, didn't they? Yeah, he took the the offer from Apocalypse. He gave up his guilt and remorse, right? And his humanity. Became just, yeah, exactly. So I thought that was a really cool callback. And, you know, being able to connect to an old story like that in a, you know, makes sense sort of way is just really cool. And and I think the art in this book reminded me of the art in that book as well, that John Paul Leon art that I like so much. It's, it's super dark, lots of black, lots and lots and lots of black. It's not photorealistic, but there's lots of like unkempt hair, uncomfortably organic looking batter technology. It looks, it looks messy. It looks worn down in, in, a, in a good way. I, I haven't read a lot of that uh, British anthology book, 2000 AD, but this feels like the art feels like it would fit in there, like in a Judge Dredd kind of a story. So I, I thought the art was, was really great. Page four, which is, uh, on that Exodus planet was, was my favorite. We've got the, like the top two thirds of the page. You see this huge, powerful Exodus, who's the master of this planet. And below, like the other third of the page, 
mirroring Exodus's pose, we see Sinister sitting in this pile of junk kind of cockpit, looking very defeated. And it works great thematically because the key is that both these characters are really losers, even the one's the king of the planet. Uh, they're both leading these meaningless lives because they live in this meaningless loser of a universe, right? It, I thought that was just a, a fantastic page. And again, it really hits the, the philosophical point. We said not a lot of philosophical stuff going on in Wolverine. This is a lot more to, to chew on, where we can certainly respect Storm's position that we can't reset this universe. That'd be wrong. That'd be like another omni-genocide. But objectively, this universe needs to be put out of its misery. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> this is not, this is not the way things should go, right? Yeah. Well, I don't think at her death she could have forecasted, you know, 900 years into the future. But yeah, things things went south. And for me, it's fun. Like, there's enough sort of weird things, right? With the idea mm. of magic waging war on the world and ripping a hole into the universe, right? Connecting Limbo and our reality. and Right. And again, we just get this little kind of off-to-the-side mention of that, which I think is 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 a good choice. It's just, yeah, it's very imaginative for me. There, there's definitely callbacks to other, you know, sci-fi and fantasy universes, right? But it's done in a way where it's not so on the head, and I appreciate that. And right. it's, it's either more oblique or it's to things I haven't read, like Warhammer things. And I was telling you, I even thought the ship that they're in, the Marauder, now that it's all beat up, it looks like a fusion of the the Bebop and the Swordfish from Cowboy Bebop. I can which, see that it's a similar kind of world where it's the future, but it's not a clean, shiny future. It's kind of a, a beat up, worn down, you know, economically not so hot future. So there's yeah. even like a Firefly kind of a feel to it as well. That same kind of future, but not not top notch. The Kitty Pride Ravager type thing is definitely a Firefly fallback, right? Like she's become this sort of wild pirate that just exists to you know, capture mm -hmm. ships that shouldn't be where they are <laughs> and do mean things to them. The, the only part of the story I thought was a little weak was the character of Rasputin, right? We haven't really gotten to know her. She was a, a cool reveal. People were excited to see her. So last issue, she was just Sinister's completely naive tool. Now she's been disillusioned, conveniently right in the very issue that we happened to peek in on her, only to become probably Mother Righteous's naive tool, right? She doesn't seem to have, uh, oh, what's the... The buzzword. She doesn't seem to have very much agency. She's not acting for herself. She's just part of these other people's stories. And whether that's going to turn around or whether she is just going to be Mother Righteous's tool, I think I think the very next issue coming up, which is Storm and the Brother next week, I think is probably going to pick up right more or less from the end of this issue. So that'll be that'll be good. Yeah. So overall, it, the the story parts were kind of it, it, it feels weird to say there's some huge story beats about you know destiny revealing things to mr sinister sinister getting to the doorstep of his lab but it really felt more like here let me tell you some things about the last 900 years of history but it was a, a, a fun way to do it the art is just really really top notch it, and fits the tone of the story just perfectly uh so i'm going to give this an 8.5 out of 10 that's exactly where i am so for me, that's two issues this week, both scoring in the eight plus range. So either either the issues are better than usual, or maybe I'm just in a particularly good mood. But that was this week. Uh, next week we have, but was not going to be any more breaks in Sins of Sinister. We have the next three weeks will be our last three issues of that, and then it's just you know wrapping up. So we don't have any more 
time off from that story. Next week is Storm and the Brotherhood, number three. So, yeah, Storm is, is dead at the moment, so it might just be the Brotherhood, unless they do some mumbo-jumbo to, to bring her back right away. Uh, also next week, we have X-Men number 21, which is supposed to be the conclusion of the Lord of the Brood story. Uh, Captain Marvel 48 also comes out next week, which I think ties in together. So depending on how much that has X-Men content, we may or may not also be talking about Captain Marvel number 40. But uh, so, Ruben, what is it again that we say at the end of each and every show? Go read more X-Men comics. And so long. Thanks for all the fish. <laughs>